Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Zair Yunus and today I have the honor of having with me Dr. Amare Malik, who is a senior research scientist at 8Data. Um, he leads the work around tracking underreported financial flows, uh, which is the program that he's head of. Um, and they've done a lot of research around figuring out, tracking, analyzing underreported financial flows um, from international donors to developing countries. And recently, Amar and his team came out with a fantastic report, which is linked below in the description called Banking on the Belt and Road Insights from a New Global Data Set of 13,427 Chinese Development Projects. I think it is a fascinating research study. I think everyone should read it. Um, and I think, um, and correct me, Dr. Malik, if I'm wrong here, but I think it is the most in-depth study of its kind uh, related to the Belt and Road Initiative, which is led by China. So first of all, amazing work. Thank you for putting you. all this research out there for us and welcome to Pakistanomy. Thank you very much, Uzair. I'm really glad to be here. So I spent a lot of time over the weekend um, reading this report and trying to get a sense of, you know, how things have changed and you know, you take a global view around what have the Chinese done, what they were doing before the advent of the 21st century, how things change with the BRI. Um, many of the listeners here are aware of BRI, particularly through the lens of China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. So maybe why don't you start with giving us an overview of what the key findings were and how has China sort of changed its role um, in international development over the last few years? Thank you, Zer. Uh, maybe I'll spend a couple of minutes just describing for your uh, viewers, you know, what uh, what we're doing and why this is important. Uh, so basically, as you know, uh, after the Second World War, the uh, group of uh, lenders from the G7, uh, which is called the Paris Club, set up uh, a system of uh, reporting uh, to each other. So whenever, let's say, the United States or Germany did any aid project to a place like Pakistan or India, for that matter, they had this commitment that on a standardized reporting format, which is managed by the OECD, which is an organization in Paris, that they will report uh, it and make it public so that there's better coordination among the donors. Uh, developing countries know what they're getting and then they can begin to you know, bet make better decisions about what's working and what's not. Now, in comes China um, since the turn of the century, 99, 2000, when they had this going out strategy and of course, China is all about trying to come up with a with an alternative vision of what this is. They don't play by the, the rules that have been established by the Paris Club. And therefore, they do not report on any of their aid activities to the OECD. They feel they're not obligated to do so. So what that leaves us is with a huge information gap um, on you know, which, which uh, developing countries are getting what kind of finances, financing from China, uh, when, how, and where. So this effort at Aid Data, which is a research lab at William & Mary, has been going on since 2013, where we basically systematically uh, review uh, projects uh, using official and open source methods to try to understand what is China financing, what, uh, where, and when. So this gives us, uh, and decision makers around the world, a comparative basis where they can do apples to apples comparisons between what G7 countries are funding around the world and what the Chinese are funding. Now. Having said that, uh, you know, I'll maybe spend a minute describing the scope of uh, the study that you've uh, that you've mentioned. First of all, uh, you're right that this is the most comprehensive study um, undertaken, and this is underlined by a data set which contains 13,427 
Chinese projects uh, funded um, between 2000 and 2017. Many of them are still ongoing. Um, our data set covers 165 countries uh, and uh, the total financing that we've tracked is $843 billion. Um, when I say it is comprehensive, it's more comprehensive than other data sets that are out there, both in terms of the sectors that we cover. So we cover energy, you know, hard infrastructure, soft infrastructure, everything under the sun. Uh, secondly, we cover all countries of the world, low income, lower middle income, upper middle income, et cetera. And also we cover all kinds of Chinese financiers. Uh, some data sets uh, that are out there will only cover the two chi big Chinese policy banks, but we also cover Chinese entities which are state owned. Sometimes they're parts of their provincial governments or state governments. Um, to give you a sense of how much, uh, how many institutions and entities we're talking about, in our data set, we have over 5,000 uh, named um, institutions, both on the implementation side and the financing side that are involved in this. Uh, we have 70 variables uh, which cover uh, for each of these projects, uh, cover how much money is committed, what sector it is in, what's the status, um, when did the project uh, start uh, work on the ground, when was it completed, where are the projects located, uh, what kind of fund funding this is? Is this uh, uh, is this commercial lending or debt or is it aid? Uh, and if it is lending, then what is the interest rate, maturity, grace period, etc. And with each of these projects, you will also see on our website aiddata.org that we have done what we call cradle to grave project descriptions, about two million words uh, worth of text, which basically tells you the story of uh, what uh, what each project is like. Now, having said that, you know, let me come to some of the findings. You know, there's a lot in there, uh, there you were talking about, but I'll give maybe three or four big highlights and we can dig deeper into whichever aspects you're most interested in. So first of all, because we are now able to track Chinese spending uh, on the same basis as U.S. and others are doing, we have the same criteria, we have the same uh, allocations of, of sectors. Uh, we are now finding that China is now outspending the United States by uh, two to one basis around the world. Um, and it is outspending the United Kingdom on a seven to one basis around the world. Now, which what this means is that until the start of the Belt and Road Initiative with China launched in 2013, the US and China were around 30, $32 billion uh, of assist, development assistance around the world. Today, China is hovering at 85 billion and the US is around 40 billion. So this just gives you the an idea of the scale at which the Chinese have done this. And I can talk more about how they've done it and why they've done it. But basically another standout feature of Chinese development finance is that since 2013, the uh, the ratio of, uh, uh, of, of, uh, <clears throat> of loans to aid uh, from China is nine to one, which means that unlike the United States and the UK where, where, who's, who are more, much more in the business of providing aid, um, uh, China is doing much more, um, much more uh, lending, debt, like, almost like commercial financing. And that gives them the ability to provide uh, infrastructure projects that no uh, no other entities are able to provide on on uh, like commercial entities like banks and so on, and that really has been uh, how China has ramped this up. Uh, a typical overseas loan from China um, has a 4.2 percent interest rate that we've found in our data set, uh, and compared to that, a typical loan from let's say Germany, France, or Japan has a 1.1 percent interest rate. And that's because they are doing this on a highly concessional basis where a Chinese 
lending is more like commercial lending as i said now so in essence this- sorry sorry to cut you off just for the listeners um essentially the second findings top line is that for every 9 dollars china gives in loans it gives 1 dollar to these countries in aid and the loans that is giving are basically three times more expensive than what japan the european union and others tend to give on average um to the same countries so it's it's a lot of loan and it's a lot more expensive that's that's exactly right and you know whether this is uh, in the best interest of developing countries or not i think we can have a discussion on that but i'm right now i'm just describing the scale of this and why they're doing this now um our finding is i mean you talked a little bit about debt trap diplomacy and we were discussing you know what that what actually means what we are finding in uh, in our research is that uh, these chinese state owned lenders i'm talking about you know banks uh, that are commercial owned by chinese government or policy bank they are basically uh, what we call yield maximizing surrogates of the state you know they provide uh, very profitable revenue generating projects which are commercially viable uh, and they just need some support to to get going but i think that's really very interesting and something that we have to wrap our head around um it is not like the chinese are coming in with some kind of a grand strategy to take over the world and grab assets i think they're just very savvy investors who are making some some decisions uh, but it is definitely the the way that they're doing this is making it's in the in this murky terrain of uh, aid and commercial financing somewhere in the middle and i think that's that's what that's what i think is is quite interesting and perhaps not a lot of people uh, people understand that now uh, the the back story of this is also quite interesting you know uh, after the 2008 financial crisis we saw that uh, the chinese and this is before the belt and road started in 2013 we saw that the uh, the, the chinese state basically started um, to realize that all of their uh, dollar uh, and euro uh, money that was sitting uh, in us treasuries was not going to give them as much of a return because of quantitative easing in the us so i think we have to understand that they were looking for uh, to solve what i think are a couple of very important domestic problems uh, a response to which is perhaps all of this money being sent out the first uh, problem was uh, an oversupply domestically of uh, steel production and just generally construction capacity and uh, they were looking for opportunities to deploy that capacity and they did it uh, overseas similarly as i said earlier they had this oversupply problem of 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 dollars and euros and perhaps not even not good uh, opportunities to invest those uh, those euros or dollars in in us treasury so i think they were trying to solve both of these problems and then uh, the bri helped them uh, achieve that um now the other interesting thing uh, as if i go back to what i was saying earlier about the about the loans was that you know the chinese state owned lenders uh, seem to be favoring a lot of uh, collateralization uh, when they lend to countries which have a very high risk uh, or high high fiduciary risk so uh, we find for example in our study that 83% of china's collateralized lending uh supports countries which are within um within the bottom quartile of uh, global index of fiduciary risk so they're quite savvy lenders when it comes to uh taking on risk and and how they want to deal with that risk um and we also find that when it comes to collateral they have a very strong preference for liquid assets um which uh, do not require them to go to a court in a given country to gain uh, gain access to an asset whereas they're they're also doing a lot of um uh, um uh, you know bank accounts and having countries uh, maintain minimum cash balances uh, in view of the lending that they're doing 
so overall i think it's 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 quite an interesting time to be studying this topic and i'm and i'm glad that you and your listeners are are interested in it i'm happy to dig into any of these aspects uzair if uh, based on your interest yeah no amar thanks for thanks for giving us that overview i think these are very important points so maybe i want to dig deep starting with sort of this maximizing yield and and the link to the us treasury right i think i i would love your thoughts but from my point of view that's a master stroke of economic diplomacy right because not only did the chinese say hey wait a minute we have this surplus of reserves in dollars and euros by the way which have been amassed because they've been running a trade surplus uh with these countries for a long long time so we have these dollars and euros and rather than continuing to finance the budget deficits of the european union or the united states at really low interest rates because interest rates were cut to near zero in 2008 let's use this to invest elsewhere where we get a better yield and oh by the way as we do that we can talk about the bri as sort of this major global infrastructure development thing that the developing world needs and that gets us influence right how do you see that sort of like do you see that as more of a strategic masterstroke as i described it or was this a series of events that sort of led china in that direction because that just emerged as the default strategy um i think it's more of uh, the latter because you know that uh, you may know this in 1999 the chinese introduced what they call the going out strategy so this uh, this trend of you know more and more chinese entities going abroad and making investments had already started um, at that time and we see you know a fledgling program going on in the 2000s even in 2006 7 for example during the musharraf years in pakistan uh, we did get an influx in a first big influx of chinese money but it became much much greater in 2008 and 9 and much more in 2013 so this was always going on of course it helps uh, to you know put all of these pieces together uh, i think that this is, they are very uh, this is basically uh, capitalism at play where the you know people have big uh, amounts of uh, state has big amount of money uh, it helps them uh, you know solve a domestic problem as i said but it also helps them buy an incredible amount of influence in developing countries and it also frankly helps export what i think is the they they call it like the china model of development which is uh, supply driven hard infrastructure driven rather than trying to invest in the software of development which other donors have done for years talk about women's rights and human rights and and things like that this is basically uh you know very hard stuff that gets built and you can see it physically and it comes with a certain kind of a mindset around supply side um supply driven uh development policy uh the other thing that i think is would be might be interesting for you is that uh we see that uh, the uh, we also saw that as the bri was introduced in 2013 a lot of these countries already had their balance sheets uh you know not in a position where they were really, they were able to take on a lot more public debt you know today we reported in our in our in our in our findings that there are 42 countries around the world that have more than 10% of their gdp exposed to china uh, as as debt so that's a huge amount of debt that these countries are taking on so back in 2013 the chinese basically made a strategic shift and this goes back to your point about strategic shift where they said well we will lend less and less to states uh, and more and more to other kind of mechanisms such as state owned enterprises in host countries or it could be joint ventures uh, special purpose vehicles uh things like that where 
a lot of this debt is now kept uh, off balance sheet so if the government of pakistan or the government of rwanda for example um is interested in an energy project the chinese side will come with a uh, uh, china exim bank or some kind of a lender uh, they will uh, bring a contractor who is willing to in, to 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 put that power plant um they will then create a, a joint venture or special purpose vehicle where the government of that country will write a sovereign guarantee which basically says you know here's the commercially viable project but if something goes wrong we'll come in and bail you out this by the way has just this week started happening and in indonesia with the jakarta bandung high high speed rail where cost overruns were such that the indonesian government had to come in and kind of bail out the project uh, in our report we call this hidden debt a lot of people especially in pakistan have misunderstood what we mean by hidden debt basically what this means is that because of the nature of these deals that 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 you're striking a lot of these debts are off balance sheets and so international uh, monetary institutions must uh, you know uh, update their systems to be able to uh, to record these debts and to be able to report to them so that everyone can make better decisions uh, about the the true form of uh, of debt in these countries yeah i recall from my own research that you know in, from 2011 to 2021 um pakistan's china share of pakistan's external debt has gone from about 4% of gdp of to- not gdp sorry of total external debt to about almost 30% and this is disclosed amounts right so this is just bilateral loans plus commercial bank debt which is separated in the balance sheet that's shared by the finance ministry but that required an imf program for the government to fully tabulate that and share that now there's stuff in the power sector there's stuff here and there as you described in spvs that people have to put down uh together but that's still confusing but it still shows despite that that you know when a country owns 30 close to 30% of your external debt um then you are um in essence uh, uh you know at their mercy if things go wrong and and you know which brings me to my next question which is around collateralization um i saw in the report that there are countries like venezuela etc that have heavily collateralized um in terms of the funding that they've gotten from china what does that collateralization look like is this because from my point of view when i was sort of as as an uninformed person if i were to think about collateralization i would think about like okay the chinese built the sri lanka hambantota port or you know there there was something that went wrong there and the sri lankans cannot pay back so all of a sudden chinese take a 99 year lease um is it like that or how is are these things structured on an average basis hmm. uh, as i was saying earlier uh, there is a wide variety obviously so first of all the reason why you you mentioned medezuela it's because you know on on fiduciary risk they're very high you know that because of all the the political turmoil their relationship with western institutions and so on so a place like this we saw we see that the chinese are much more likely to uh, to 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 use collateral as a, a a credit enhancement technique you know other other techniques are things like sovereign guarantee like we have in, in the case of pakistan uh, it could also be insurance you know they have also have a, a company called sinoshore which provides insurance where you pay 5 or 6% of the the capital amount of the loan you're taking and they'll insure you against uh, the risk of not paying back uh, as far as collateral is concerned we are finding in our report that they're increasingly showing signs of being very savvy about it uh, for the riskiest countries we see that they sometimes um, create a, what is called an escrow account um, in beijing or in some other country which is controlled by the lender in which the government is asked to put a, a liquid uh, 
uh, asset cash uh, in the account uh, against that that loan as collateral so that they can if if needed they can basically put that in their uh, back pocket and walk out of the door right so they don't have to go into litigation or you know acquire an asset which otherwise would not be feasible i think this humban tota example is is cited quite a bit and it, it this has also you know created this narrative around you know asset grabbing and especially in the african context 5 10 years ago there was a lot of discussion of how chinese agricultural projects were all about grabbing land from from africa i think it's not that i think they're just as i said they're just yield maximizing surrogates of the state who are trying to do their best to protect their 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 interests so uh, i think it's a very interesting situation where collateralization is being used more in risky places and in being used in very savvy ways and um the other thing you know you might be thinking you know why why then if it's so lopsided why are these governments you know agreeing to these terms and conditions and i think one of the reasons that we found is that the 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 difference in the in the capacities of the two sides to negotiate uh, to understand the terms and conditions that they're agreeing on is extremely um, is is extremely different to the chinese side we've seen evidence um hire some of the world's best uh transaction lawyers i'm not talking about chinese lawyers i'm talking about uh, boutique uh, law firms in new york and london and paris uh, to write these contracts and make sure that in the in the case of uh, a default that they are the senior creditor and that there are very watertight terms and conditions um around uh, disclosure of these debts and so on so um uh, but on the other hand if you look at some of these developing countries you have bureaucrats from ministries of finance who you know who just don't have that kind of capacity or legal training to be able to understand what is it that they're taking on um so i think there's that aspect that also we need to we need to consider uh, as we think about this problem yeah i remember the watertight conditions being a problem because uh when for example the pakistan tehreek and saab the ruling party in pakistan was in opposition asad umar who was sort of the shadow finance minister used to talk a lot about um how they want more transparency in the china pakistan economic corridor and then when he came in as finance minister and the pti came to power in 2018 the rhetoric changed right i think somebody probably sat him down and said look here the whole had a tight legal conditions um and your old rhetoric about being transparent is not going to do anybody any good um because here are the terms that were agreed upon um in this situation um from your point of view also another thing that stood out to me in the report was the fact that countries like Nigeria, Iran, Vietnam um have super long uh timelines for implementation of these projects right so if i'm looking at the table here Nigeria um average days to implement 9.1 years Iran 7.1 uh Vietnam close to 5 Sri Lanka close to 5 um do you have a sense of why this is the case where things are super slow because one thing that again we hear in popular media um is that the chinese are very efficient in getting things off the ground and completing these projects so why is it the case that some of these countries have super long day, years takes years and years for implementing these projects uh, uh i mean of course there's a long uh, list of countries and many many projects that we're talking about but i'll try to summarize it in sort of uh, broad strokes um first of all what we are seeing is that uh, bri projects which are mostly hard infrastructure projects and have been undertaken Yeah, recently since 2013 they are much more likely to run into these kind of problems uh, we are finding in our data set that uh, about 35% of projects have uh, some kind of a major problem when it comes to implementation it could be uh, 
corruption scandal or controversy, uh, environmental issues, uh, public protest, or just generally underperformance. Uh, uh, and I think the reasons vary, obviously, but this trend is continuing uh, because the Chinese are now implementing um, much larger, more complex projects that involve, uh, <clears throat> you know, larger activities sets on the ground. In a place like Pakistan, I think one of the reasons why some of the energy projects in coal that you mentioned um, earlier, they were, uh, you know, brought online in a matter of months, you know, two to three years sometimes, because the government had this very strong um, sort of focus on trying to solve the energy crisis. And these, um, when they were brought in, it, they were given explicit instructions to say, good, we're going to give you very good terms and conditions and we'll give you full political administrative, financials, whatever support you need to get these online. And what we're seeing in some of these countries is that there's implementation <clears throat> uh, problems happen. If there's a change of government during uh, this time period, they would say, come out and say, we, we need to review everything. We saw this in Malaysia with Mahathir Mohammed became prime minister. He basically said, we're going to re reevaluate all of these projects. Um, and I think we saw similar sentiments even in Pakistan with Razak Daud basically saying we're going yeah. to go and re revisit uh, these projects. In the case of Iran, I think uh, it's a very we highlight this in the in the report also. It's very interesting that the uh, the U.S. sanctions have played a big part in this, whereas the the Iranian and the Chinese side had come up with a way of circumventing those uh, by creating you know alternative banking institutions that could operate. But then um, the U.S. regulators caught up with that, and they they nipped it in the butt. So, and I guess it doesn't really. It also doesn't really help that a lot of the loans are given out in dollars, right? So it doesn't really help the Chinese circumvent when Uncle Sam catches up and gets smart about Absolutely. what's going on. Absolutely. The yeah. other thing that's super interesting, again, like you mentioned, Malaysia. Um, again, the table here is fascinating in the sense that, according to your team's research. About 10 projects in Pakistan are subject to scandals, controversy, alleged violations. Um, uh, Malaysia has five, but Pakistan's 10 is like almost $6 billion, while Malaysia is like close to $20 billion or $19 billion um, out of the five. Um, what, you know, you mentioned Mahathir and what happened there. Can you tell us a bit more about like what exactly happened in the Malaysian context? Because I know a little bit about the fact that you know, again, there are some similarities around what's going on in Indonesia in the sense that Jokowi has staked his reputation to Chinese funding, etc. So again, have, have, have sort of like the lesson been out of these two countries that when the political winds shift and the nature of the conversation around China, its role, whether the money it gave was good or bad, like does that change around the world? Yeah, that, that's exactly what, what, what happens. And it's, I think, they, not all of these uh, changes are purely driven by political motives. You know, in some countries, there are very clear pro-Beijing and anti-Beijing sentiments and elections. And when, you know, governments change, things happen. Uh, but what we're seeing is that a lot of it's a, the trend that I'm seeing is, is both in Indonesia and Malaysia, for example, is both sides, uh, both projects uh, are were allegedly overpriced. Um, and they were sometimes considered to be vanity projects or too luxurious, something we cannot afford. Uh, similar to what we saw, you know, with the Lahore um, Orange Line project, which was like, what are we, why are we spending 1.2 billion on a metro rail project? Similar sentiment. Whereas in the case of Malaysia, what we saw was there was a change of government that happened. They put a pause to the project, decided to revisit it, uh, couldn't come up with a deal. And so they ended up canceling the project. This is why you see the number being so high. 
Um, we, in our data set, we also study cancellations, by the way, and suspensions, which we think tell us a lot about what's gonna, what's going to happen. So I think that as around the world, uh, I anticipate that as uh, revenue streams for governments dry out during the COVID uh, era, uh, we will see that uh, countries which owed so much money to China, um, their areas are beginning to grow more and more. And so we will expect in the coming uh, months and years, more and more cases like this, where either projects are being suspended or canceled, uh, or governments are uh, saying, you know, we we just cannot pay you back. So it would be very interesting to see how the Chinese side responds. So far, you know, we have seen no evidence that they are willing to write off debts like it used to happen with the US and UK and others in the old days, you know, where they would write off your debt and reschedule it. They're still saying, you know, you still owe us that money in arrears with interest, but we're going to make it a little bit easy for you uh, by extending the repayment uh, terms and perhaps changing the interest rate a little bit, where basically you're paying out uh, the same loan over a longer period of time. It feels like you're paying less back every year, um, but over time, the net present value of those loans is going to go up. So I think that's the trend that I'm observing. And Unfortunately, I don't see this getting better in the months ahead. I think it's you'll see more and more cases like this happening around the world. Yeah, I think um, that that <laughs> resonates with some of my own research related to Pakistan, where just a few weeks ago, um, the Pakistanis tried to renegotiate the power deals um, with the mm. Chinese, and you know, in, in total, close to a billion and a half US dollars are owed. Um, in, in receivables to the Chinese. And there were rumors that Pakistan is pressing China to, hey, let's renegotiate the way we renegotiated with the domestic IPPs and the Joint Coordination Committee met. And out of that, the press release was that Pakistan and China agree that there will be no renegotiation. And I was like, well, basically it was the Chinese telling the Pakistanis that there will be no renegotiation. You have to pay what you owe. To which then I was joking that with some friends that basically what might happen is uh, a financial institution, a Chinese state-owned bank, essentially, uh, will lend Pakistan a billion and a half dollars out of Beijing, which will end up in another bank's accounts in Beijing, which are run by the investors. And that will end up as a balance sheet item on the State Bank of Pakistan's thing as external debt. And that's how the loans would be paid back. And then obviously, we will have things moving forward. Um, which brings me to Pakistan, because I know we're a bit short on time. And, and I want to touch upon Pakistan in the sense that you're from Pakistan, I'm from Pakistan, the listeners, a lot of them are from Pakistan. We're frequently told that, you know, the Chinese relationship is higher than the Himalayas and deeper, deeper than the Arabian Sea or whatever that line might be. Um, from your research, have you seen any evidence that perhaps the way the Chinese have given Pakistan these, this money or the loans that Pakistan has received is in any way more concessionary than the 4.2% average rate that they've given to everybody else on average? Or is this Pakistan is part of the same sort of? Bucket? No, in, um, in in Pakistan's case, you know, there's not uh, interest rate is not the only variable. Of course, you have to to calculate the 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 actual cost of of lending. You have to look into you know uh, maturity and grace period and and insurance and fees and all that stuff. But I think just interest rate is obviously very important. What we're finding in our uh, data is that in Pakistan, the average interest rate is actually 3.76%, uh, lower than the 4.2 that we find around around the world. Uh, we also find 60% of the what we call the CPEC portfolio uh, is actually energy projects. And most of them were committed during the Nawaz Sharif years uh, between 2013 and 2018. Of course, generation capacity has expanded 
quite dramatically in that time period as well which uh, uh, gets reflected in this yeah so you can say in a way that it's a uh, it's it's better than the 4.2% that um they are giving um uh, around the world but uh, we are still working in into the details of the data to understand whether uh, these interest rates are um one better than what um others other financiers were uh, were were willing to provide at that time to pakistan and whether the chinese financiers were providing the same or better rates to other countries doing similar projects around the world of course the risk profile of pakistan uh, in 2013 14 was also pretty um uh, much worse i would say than what it is now you know mainly because of the security situation but also other factors yeah i think that's what the previous government's folks have argued is that at that time there was no one coming to invest in the power sector in particular and so we needed the power and this was the best offer and probably the only offer on the table um and i think there's also some merit to the argument that a lot of this investment came in power it boosted pakistan's generation capacity it fixed the supply side problem that was there but in order to sustainably pay back the money that is now owed Pakistan had to do certain actions right and its power sector reforms its own economic reforms and so long as those reforms aren't done the problem will end up on the chinese financing side in terms of we can't pay back the money so even if it's 3.7% it's a bit lower even if it's higher my position always to pakistanis has been you've taken the loan and it was good money in terms of what you needed to produce and it met your needs um you need to make effective use of this power now to build your export side to build your economy and generate the dollar revenues that you need frankly to pay back um those us dollars um last question i had for you on this overall thing you mentioned that in the next few months and years you see like sort of the the yield maximization strategy so to speak i'm putting words in your mouth be tested right because here's a savvy looking investor at this point in time but we know from the post world war 2 era as you mentioned rightfully that the europeans the americans and others and multilateral institutions have all sort of had this uh run up of debt and then they realize that countries like nigeria or the east asian financial crisis happens or they can't pay that money back and then things change um what do you see from your point of view um or any evidence or your thoughts on the chinese strategy in case that begins to happen right um right now they're probably not willing to negotiate but if if sort of enough countries start being unable to pay um what do you see happening to the overall bri in that instance uh, there's a couple of thoughts i have uh, uzair on this first of all i think that yes you're absolutely right this is something that's going to play out and nobody really knows what's going to happen uh, even though our data only covers commitment year to th- until commitment year 2017 we did begin to see in the last few years of our data 2015 16 17 that the chinese are multilateralizing their uh, their uh, their lending which means that the percentage of loans that are purely financed by either a single chinese bank or even a group of chinese only banks is going down and they are increasingly now bringing even the likes of the uk's uh, fcdo uh, asian development bank african development bank islamic development bank to uh, come in and create syndicates uh, to provide these loans so to me this suggests that this is like a like a risk hedging strategy that they're um, implementing whether that means that they are also accepting the quote unquote uh, norms like it, of international order uh, is yet to be seen but that's one sign that's happening 
The other thing as we move forward to this COVID era and look at areas, you know, piling up, I think we're going to quietly start to see uh, uh, debt to equity swaps taking place. Um, and I think that is, I don't know what form that might take, whether they will be made public or not. But increasingly, to me, that sounds like the only viable solution. So in other words, if 75% of a $1 billion power plant was lent to a place like Pakistan, and, and the Pakistani side just cannot keep up with the payments, and they, the, they can see that their balance sheet cannot afford to do that, you know, one solution is to increase your level of equity in, um, in, in, the, in the arrangement. And in the case of Pakistan, you know, you mentioned the, the power sector. One of the most interesting aspects of this, which again is available on the NEPRA's website, is the, the, the equity that is gone into these power plants. Uh, many, much, many of these are you know, local uh, suppliers like Habib Bank or uh, Nishat Group or something. They are getting up to 35, 36% return on equity, dollar denominated. You know? So uh, getting, you know, swapping your debt for equity may not be a bad deal, but under what terms and conditions that will happen uh, I think will be the big question. Yeah, and I think in the Pakistani case in particular, there is a guaranteed dollar-denominated return on equity, but it's not like the sovereign pays you on time. <laughs> so that opens up another problem because the generation plant is separated from the distribution company. But I think you're right, there will be a reckoning, uh, particularly in the Pakistani case, in the power sector, around privatizing distribution companies or power sector reforms that goes along with the equity stakes um, because at some level um, the sovereign will basically run into a position where it says we can't pay and then that will be the onus uh, for reform. But uh, Dr. Amar, uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, this has been a wonderful piece of research. So kudos to you and your entire Thank team you. for putting out this research uh, for all of us to look at because for years we've heard about the fact that you know BRI and the projects around BRI are shadowy and it's not clear what's going on. So this costs a light um, in an unprecedented way on what's going on. So thank you for that. Um, thank you for sharing with us your findings and your insights and keep up the great work. And hopefully we'll have you soon again to talk about what comes next in you know, BRI as these projects sort of hit uh, the brick wall of reality, so to speak, when the repayments are due. Um, my pleasure, Zair. Thank you very much. And we look forward to uh, having more conversations with you in the future. Thank, Thank you for you. having me. Bye. Bye.